they travelling in for an hour and a bit and mm. travelling out for an hour and a bit and they're in for three hours of lectures and going, oh, fucking hell, three hours of lectures, this is a bit shit. I've, I've spent as much time commuting as I have in lectures. Welcome to Surviving Society with... Chantal and Tisay. Britain's regressing to the 19th century and doing it with our eyes open. Yo. Hello everyone. We are really excited to be joined by Michael Hobson, who is a senior lecturer at St Mary's University Twickenham. In what's the department, Michael? Um, so I am in the randomest department in the world. It's called Psychology and Pedagogic Sciences. Wow. Um, <laughs> that I think so some, sick. Some, yeah, someone just like peas, right? Yeah. Um, and it's in the School of Thought, Health and Applied Sciences. Oh, but, yeah. Um, I teach on the physical and sport education degree and more sport science this year as well. But sociology of sport and like the tiniest little bit of philosophy. So that's... Welcome, 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 welcome Michael. Michael, can I start off? Right, can yeah. I read the abstract of your chapter in a book that we're going to talk a little bit about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael and his colleague Stuart Wigger were contributing authors to Dismantling Race in Higher Education, Racism, Whiteness and Decolonising the Academy, edited by Dr Jason Arda and Professor Heidi Mirza. Obviously, Jason's a very good friend of the podcast and Heidi's a legend. So this is a pretty cool book to be in. Like, it's... <laughs> like, massive. Like, he's like, Michael's face like... You know, you know when, like... I'm going to use a sports analogy here now, but you know like, when they throw, like, a 16-year-old in, in, like, the Champions League final or something? I think, yeah. what's it, Ryan Bertrand? He played in, the, like, his first game for Chelsea years back was the Champions League final. This is how I felt, because this is the first oh, book chapter I've been asked to write. The big leagues. And all of a sudden, like... Yeah, you got you got the proper big hitters Nicola in there. Nicola Rollock, Heidi Meza, uh, you've got Remy Joseph Salisbury, you've got Aziz at Johnson, Adam Elliott Cooper, like all these people. Like yeah, well, Adam's in as well. Yeah, like yeah, it's good, it's good, it's good. Very good people, and there was me and Stu just sitting here like, no, what? right, listen, 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 roll back. Your chapter is really, really powerful. Like, um, I wanted to refresh my mind this morning, so reread it this morning. I'm just going to read um your little introduction. The title is White Privilege empathy and alterity in higher education teaching about race and racism in the sociology of PE and sport do you want to read the introduction? I can do. It's the shortest title in the world. But it's really, but it's really um, um, coherent. Okay, yeah. That's Stuart. He does all the tidying up bits. I just do the ideas. So it says, This autoethnographic account discusses our experiences of delivering lectures on race and ethnicity in physical education and sport to consider the extent which our status as white HE practitioners reinforces and or undermines white privilege and HE. As white males with research interest in other sociological phenomena in the fields of PE and sport, namely social class, which is me, Michael, and nationalism, Stuart, we make no claim to be experts in the field of race. Instead, we attempt to position ourselves as part of the structures that reinforce the hegemonic status of whiteness within higher education. Hereby, we explore our simultaneously developed critical consciousness in both our own practice and that of the students we work with. Boom. Yeah. Boom. And what I feel like is just so powerful and why it's really good to sort of bring Michael in via this chapter is because we talk a lot about this stuff on the podcast and it's so good to have actually like a white male come and talk about it from their perspective as well. Well, this is a journey I'm on at the moment. So with the far right and all that kind of stuff, I've kind of the conceptual basis that how do you engage critically? Mm. with the idea of race and the idea of whiteness this is i think in the work of anti-racism going forward it's no longer deaf, down to ethnic minorities now the unfinished work is the critical basis of whiteness man mm. like 
because if you don't engage in that half of it, the, the other half, the struggle, that's been well documented, man. Mm. The yeah. other half is the other half of the equation is whiteness because I don't think we've spent a lot of time really p- picking that apart and making people really think about what that means. And that that's what I feel like Michael really does. What Michael and Stuart do really well in this chapter is it's al- almost like your subconscious and subconscious and how you think all your thoughts and feelings about race and racism within higher education mm. sort of in a chapter but in a way that's sort of honest and raw like at the beginning of each section I really like you've got this sort of like italicized sort of thought processes mm. of how you're teaching and like what being white means and teaching race and your sort of thoughts and feelings but also your nerves mm. and sort of like fragilities in talking about racism as well and I just think that's so it's not often you get to read stuff like that as a black person written by a white person if I'm honest I go to a lot of these conferences and I go to a lot of the academy and I see a lot of people who are oh I don't want to use the term bullshitters but um, and, <laughs> but, but who, who are trying to overcompensate for their fragilities yeah so you see a lot of people at conferences who are trying to hit people with big theory mm. or trying to produce an article or out ref each other or whatever else mm. and they're so concerned with that element of it that they don't take the time to actually go right well I might need to look inwards a little bit first. Yeah. And like one of the things that struck me as madness is when I first started. So my background's not in, in sociology to start off with. So I started off doing a degree in physical and sport education. Then I did a master's in pedagogy and professional practice. Um, but it's like pedagogy in, in PE. Mm. And then I sort of st- come the end of that, like I started reading bits of sociology. And then like I used to sit opposite Stuart and I used to chat. Mm. And I was like, I pick up did his PhD at Loughborough. I've just started doing, well, I started doing mine a while back at Loughborough. Sorry. And um, <laughs> what I found nuts was there's people who, like, agree on the same thing as a problem, mm. right? So nationalism is a problem or racism is a problem or inequality is a problem but are so busy beefing each other about, like, models or theories or whatever else. Mm. And I'm like, if you just looked inwards a little bit, rather than trying to outdo someone else on a model or a theory or yeah. whatever else, and started to go, actually, what can I do? You know, and one of the things that is, I guess, really powerful, what, what I got from you guys was when I sort of read Reniado Lodge. Mm. And that final chapter, she's just like, look, I don't want people to start keep on asking me what can I do but just recognise where you can do stuff and do it yeah if you're in the centre what do you do right so people ask me so what see, what can I do no but mm. the thing is though rolling back that for one sec mm-hmm. that what can I do phrase thinking about what Michael's just said mm-hmm. I think there are things tangible actions that people can do within their everyday that they're not even thinking about oh. as in like whether it's through job appointments, whether it's through reading over stuff, whether it's through feedback to students. I think there's so many little things that people can do. I, th- listen, do you I, know what I mean? But you have to be thinking that way first, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have yeah, to be yeah, thinking yeah. critically. Yeah. But if your life is an uncritical one, yeah. then what, how do you do that? Yeah. So where would I start? So that's why you asked the question, because I, have I haven't really thought about it. So what do I do? So it's like with the Me Too movement. And the man said, so what, can, what can I change? I'm doing everything right, aren't I? Because yeah. to them, it's normal. And that's where, like, for me, being asked to write this chapter, I think Jason, like, he, he, he denies that he did it, but I feel like he knew that if he asked us to write this chapter, he was going to make us... He didn't tell us what it was about, but he knew as soon as we started engaging with that material, 
we'd have to start looking at ourselves a little bit. And I feel like it was, I, I might be wrong about this, but it was a bit of a conscious decision where we started, because we'd sit there and go, oh my God, this is terrible. Oh my God, this is really bad yeah. before. And we had all these anxieties and fears, but up until that point, we'd had Jason to do the lectures. Mm. So Jason would go and do the lecture on race. And I was like, phew, thank I don't have to do that. Yeah. That's nice one. I don't have to go there and potentially say something that might either be perceived as offensive by this person here or potentially upset some of my white students because they think I'm coming in a little bit strong. Yeah. yeah. And it was a bit of a, oh, don't have to do that. And then in the same year, Jason left and went to Leeds and then said to me, oh, by the way, mate, can you write this? And you start you started going, oh, fuck, I've got to actually look at myself a little bit. And come the end of my master's, it really, I think, changed my thinking. And it wasn't even like a hugely philosophical or sociological bit of work. I started reading about action research. And there's a woman called, um, it's McNiff and Whitehead, Jean McNiff. Yeah. And within it, there was this quote, and it said, our, our actions are value-laden and value-driven. And I was like, well, probably to use sociology, it's not that philosophical. But at the time, I was like, so basically, the way I act transmits what people think I believe and the way, and the way that 100% and the way that and the actions I take are driven by my values and I was like fuck like I'm starting to transmit these values and behaviors across to people and I really had to start to think what am I transmitting subconsciously and this is I guess where this book chapter kind of comes from in many ways but you see this is the thing right so to do these kind of things to do this kind of work involves a level of empathy mm. it involves a, a lot of internal reflection right and because it's the kind of person that you are, it's led you down a certain path. But mm. I've had equally white mates who have that same kind of, they've had that same journey and come to a different conclusion. And they've come to a different conclusion. And the conclusion, somebody, and someone on the far right, they come, they've done this reflective search mm. and they've come to the conclusion that... It's our fault. It's a war. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The way I like to find and think of it, like I was saying earlier, it's a spectrum, right? Yeah. Humanity is a spectrum. You're going to get people you can't convince. They're never going to be convinced. Mm. Even if you take them down that journey, I'm not concerned about them, yeah. right? There's also going to be there's the people in the middle that are, that are toing and throwing. These are the people that you want to get. Yeah, because definitely. there's always someone that's going to get it, but there's people in the middle that are, these are the ones you want to it's get. It's like an election, isn't it? It's a swing 100%. Like yeah, yeah. swing voters, right? 100%. It's, it's like at the moment, and I'm not an expert on politics, but you sit there and go, Labour aren't going to win it. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they're never going to appeal to swing voters. Yeah. And in the same way, I guess it's how, as an academic, I look around and I go, right, who do I put my efforts into? Mm-hmm. Like, and that's colleagues, that's students. Who, mm. who do I sort of go try and take along this journey with me? Who do I say, like, let's put this event on together or let's write this together mm. or, look, let's have a think about who we can work with. And then there's there's those who just go, and uh, they're never going to get it. They're never going to get it. And they might be good people and they might be... Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a personal thing, but like I said, it's, it's that level of reflection that some of it... Either you're not willing or you don't care. And that's fine. Yeah. Because I speak to people that don't care. But also, I think this relates back to an episode that we did with Mikola Benson when mm. she was talking about, like, it's actually those middle class groups, and particularly within higher education, mm. that sort of feel like they're beyond either committing to or perpetuating inequalities in their personal lives or even, in, yeah, within the academy, that we have to actually sit them down and be like, look, this is what's happening. Like those people, they are the they're the majority. I, I think so you see that kind of debate in America. It's kind of, I think it's kind of polarized a bit, but so they're the kind of classic the liberal, yeah. the beating liberal, like the good liberal, yeah. right? And in America, that this kind of debate is very very polarized. You have the liberal who's definitely kind of someone who's a race warrior, who's mm. on the side of different minorities for women, 
basically any marginalised group they'll defend, mm. right? Yeah. And you've got the neoconservatives, the paleo conservatives. These are the opposite. Mm. But what do you think we have here? I think I think humanity is just more nuanced, man. No, as in oh. you're, you've given the American context. Then what do you think? In is the it? UK, we're talking about UK think, higher so, education. I think in the UK higher education, I, I, I would say that the classic Guardian reader, man, like yeah. boom, 100%. I see them on the train. Listen, you're my power, isn't it? Like yeah. you will come. You I'll see you at the damn brick lane. Boom. Yeah. Buying a pair of trainers. Uh, but yeah, we're not we're not tame people, man. I feel like that's a term that in my head I read the term like you label people like there are people who want to take action or they're guardian readers. Mm. And I don't want to back because this is like you said it's your friends and to some extent yeah, it's my pals, isn't it? And like it's my partner. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, and, and look, if I look around my department, I would like probably argue that probably like nearly everyone in my department is like that right and i'm literally have ended up somehow the only sociologist in our whole faculty like but that's and i wouldn't even call myself a sociologist i don't actually like i don't like it when academics describe themselves by the discipline they teach yeah yeah. because i'm like you're a person first Mm. that teaches sociology Mm. you're not a sociologist get your head out of your ass mm. yeah and i'm probably upsetting a lot of people as i'm saying this no but i know what you mean like yeah. we should all we should all especially in the social sciences as well we should all be learning from or trying to learn from each other and i think yeah. sometimes you're right there michael sociologists will often be some of the hardest people to get to engage in anti-racist work because they feel like they, they are they know better. they're beyond it yeah, they're they above better. it so i do actually when, when you're talking about those labels i see your point there because Actually, these people are some of the hardest people to actually get to change. I think it comes from the kind of academic arrogance, right? Yeah. I read enough books. I do the, I do the research. I study these people so I know, right? So why do I need to change? Because I, I know yeah. I'm on the inside track. But realize, without realising you're perpetuating another stereotype. And, and that's the thing, right? So when I started my PhD, like, there was a point where I was like, ah, oh, fuck. If I don't do something to try and, and I didn't know what that was like as I said I'm, this PhD has been going on going on forever um, and if there's any really like kind people out there who want to be a really kind and nice external examiner <laughs> and come along and just put it through them by all means like I'm, I'm, I'm looking I started realising that there's this potential to be exploiting people's narratives and there's a lot of people who, who do that and so like my PhD is on, on on social class and I started off trying to justify the fact that I was working class. I tried to label myself as working class, you know. And there's bits about my, my biography and my history, which I could selectively pick and say, yeah, I'm working class, right? But in reality, you know, I think I remember sort of reading Mike Savage, and I know, again, there's critiques of that for whatever reasons, but one of the things that he said was, it's about that everyday crystallisation of small advantages that pay off, that make you working class or middle class. And I sat there and I went, do you know what? Like, sometimes I might be able to sound a bit like a moody Danny Dyer or whatever else mm. in the situation that I decide to be in. Mm. But in reality, I, I, I'm, I'm middle class. You know, like my mum my mum was, was a school teacher. Like, she didn't become a school teacher until I was 11. But, you know, mm. I, like I'm, and I realised that if I was just to take these narratives of, people and again within my study I've got working class all the way through to what I call established middle class Mm. our university is very different it's not like Loughborough Um, but still I went if I'm making my name and my career off of a group of people or off any groups of people I've got to one represent them fairly and two not use it just to get myself a leg up in a system that 
actually, I'm going, God, this system creates inequalities. But do you know what? You see that role as programme director <laughs> or you see that role of head of department. Yeah. If, if I do this PhD, it might get me that job. Yeah. And actually, it made me realise that I've got to invest, make sure I invest time within those students that are being disadvantaged by the system, which it's not a secret. Like, mm. whether they're BAME or working class or before the conversation Both, we were having, yeah. actually in London, mm. like the majority of my students who I initially labelled as working class actually sat down and went, yeah, they're BAME. And they weren't always black. There was often some of them who were Southern European or yeah, yeah, yeah. some of them who um, were like East African. <clears throat> so like yeah. when you first meet them, you go... And you can see where particularly those sort of acronyms, like I understand on an institutional mm. level why we have to use those acronyms. I don't like love them myself, mm. but there will be times when I've got to use them. But you can see how like when you bring in class, how those acronyms sort of do a disservice even to those groups because like working class Somalis are very different to working class Jamaicans. And oh, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and it's like... It's, it's, and this is something, sorry. Go on, no, but this, saying, this is something I'd say like, one of the guys who had one of the hardest times in university in my group, um, I'm careful not to say where he's from yeah, yeah, particular yeah. because that was one of the things where I was studying my students. I didn't want my colleagues to know who I'm talking about because some of them have said some pretty damning things about some of them. Yeah. Um, but he was like from a Mediterranean background, yeah. right? And because he grew up in a very working class area, you know, highly deprived, high, high levels of gang violence, high levels of all of that, he saw himself as non-white. Right, yeah, he, yeah. He came to uni and he was like, man, like, there's so many white people. Like, yeah. I went to college and everyone was Ghanaian or of Nigerian descent yeah, yeah. or of Caribbean descent or of Asian descent. And they'll come to uni and there's just loads of white people. Whereas, I guess that's where that class element possibly comes into it, mm. that I think if he'd grown up in a middle-class area, I can't speak for him, but I'm sure he probably would have seen himself as being more white. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And I think that's where those sort of elements come into it. Yeah. Yeah. Space, yeah, place is really important for racialization. The yeah. idea of classifying people. Mm. Like this is this is the whole Enlightenment project, to classify groups. And we know, as sociologists, it breaks down mm. rapidly. As soon as you apply a different lens to it, it doesn't really make sense. Mm. But for academic purposes, we use these terms yeah. all the time. And it does a disservice to our discipline, really, because we're all about nuance, right? So, Michael, going back to, like, sort of your reflective piece yeah. with Stuart about, like, whiteness in the academy and navigating, mm. like, privilege whilst also trying to teach about inequality, mm. you were talking um, earlier before we started recording about how you you spend quite a lot of time trying to convince your white peers about the things that you now see as very important mm. within higher education but you sort of said that there where was a distinction between knowing and actioning or I what you're trying to do at the moment is actually really difficult so like my, yeah my colleague said this the other day uh, perry said it the other day and he said there's this difference between caring and being committed yeah that's it that's it that's um it. and what's interesting because like if i look back two and a half years i was i've got i've got to take all the responsibility on my shoulders i'm gonna all of these students I think to some extent, I always go, did I almost enact some of that white saviour complex where I was like, if no one else is going to do it, I'm going to I'm going to do it for them, right? Mm. Um, I'm going to, because because my colleagues don't care. Um, and then in recent years, something that's been really helpful is that actually the university, for some reason, maybe the Office of Students, possibly, um, they've decided to set up committees to challenge these things. Now, in themselves, a lot of those meetings are rubbish. 
mm-hmm. right? Like you sit there and it's not, just meetings are always rubbish. doesn't matter if you have the best intention people, the best planned people. Some of the people who run these meetings are loved to pieces, but you get in a meeting, everyone just goes, mm-hmm. switch off. But it's the stuff that you do in between, which kind of help take action. And like Perry, my colleague said, I guess it's a difference between those people who care and those people who are committed. And when he talks about being committed, it's about the day-to-day actions and the day-to-day actions where you invest in your students who are from disadvantaged backgrounds. And I hate that term, right? Because we're yeah. quite comfortable with the term disadvantaged. Mm. So work, work, so middle-class people are really comfortable with the term disadvantaged. Mm. Not advantaged. But not privileged. Yeah, not advantaged. yeah, privileged. yeah privileged. <laughs> Like, oh, no, I'm not privileged, but they're disadvantaged. Yeah. For me, it's, I guess, how we start trying to get those who care to be committed and yeah. I can't remember if I said this now or before like but I think it's that that's something that I've you know been thinking a lot about and over the last year I guess I thought there's a group of colleagues who I sit on these committees with where we've started to try and look right what events can we put on you know how can we challenge the lack of discrimination policies how can we do this and, and the one thing I'd say is it reminds me of one of your very early episodes where you said about finding your people and how that enables you to take action and commit to things because mm. for me the most useful people that i've found that allow me to be committed to this are people who are not in my department so mm. some of the staff in widening participation the random guy in careers who cares about this because this is his experience a colleague in psychology mm. um program director for criminology like oh, these these, these random people that you don't necessarily get together until and for me now, now we're planning to put on like events and stuff like that. I know in themselves they can be shallow, but for me it's now sort of saying to the people I have conversations in the office with, mm. actually, can you help me plan this? Can you help me yeah. do this? Can you do this? And by starting to take that action or that interaction, my gut feeling is that they'll start to take some of the steps that I initially took here. Now, I'm, I don't know how much that would change, but my gut feeling is that does something right and it's how you get people to look at how they prioritize their day um and you know like i've been in many ways incredibly privileged Mm. like in that i'm working i've been working in higher education for nine years right i'm 30 which is nuts like that in sociology that wouldn't happen Mm. in pe that's been able to happen right i've been in that position without a doctorate you know a lot of other disciplines that wouldn't happen i go i go on twitter now and I see some fantastic academics who can't get a job for love nor money, right? Mm. So I look at that and I go, right, well, in terms of the way I plan my day, if I've been this lucky to be this privileged, I've got to make sure that I think about my, my interactions. And if that is the conversation with a student at the start of the lecture to acknowledge them and ask them about how they were, how their journey was, mm. like minimal things, right? But that's important. Or if I know that I've got a student that like some like that's struggling or having a having a hard time with things it's me going right when's the best time for me to plan that meeting and go actually do you know what that student needs and there's some academic staff will be looking at me like I'm mad but that student needs an hour to talk to me maybe more yeah, 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 yeah. and going well, we'll plan it we'll plan it in at four o'clock because by that time in the day my productivity is going that way, yeah. but I can be empathetic and caring and I can give them the time and I can listen to them. And you know, like it's allowing yourself to 
just go, I'm not just an academic. Like, that's not just my roles. Mm. Like, I'm developing people here and doing some of this reflective work on sort of race and class. It made me realise the most powerful thing I ever did was sit down and listen to my students talk to me for an hour. Yeah. But see, when I see, I've had the kind of like privilege of seeing Michael lecture and his, his relationship with the students, right? Mm. And like, not gassing, but if I was a student, I'd appreciate that shit, man. Mm. And, yeah. I, and I could see that from them. Like, yeah. they respect you. Not because you've been telling them stuff, like, you talk to them like fucking normal people, bro. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. that, to me, that's a fucking revelation, bro. Like, yeah. I've come to places and people don't even talk to me. The guy talks to me through a fucking door. And that's real talk. You know that anecdote. Yeah, that's real talk. So listen, to, someone to talk to me like a normal person. So they're not, you're not talking to me like a stereotype. You're not trying to be my friend. You're not trying to say, touch, bro, don't touch me. Who are you touching? So I don't I guess, know you, bro. So I guess on the side, and this isn't to pay devil's advocate, but on mm. the side of these conversations about taking time for students mm. and particularly those that are marginalised by the academy is the fact that the academy is set up on neoliberal principles, which means that academics, the people that teach us, are under huge amounts of pressure, have massive job loads, but then I bring in like another side of that as well is that I'm very much of the belief that as academics, as PhD students, we are still, we are a hugely privileged group. Mm. So Wait. in my mind, and again, I'm not, I've not got my PhD yet. I've not, I've not taught full time yet in the academy, but in my mind, I know there are these pressures, but I do feel like whether it's from my mentors and sponsors, there are little things that people can do mm. that can check can be game changers. Listen, right, listen I, I get all those things, right? And this extends to the corporate world, all this world. Fuck all that, man. Like, if we keep doing this, we get the same results, yeah, man. Fuck it all. Exactly. Like, you yeah. can change this, man. But people at the top can change this. But it takes effort. And what you're describing there is monumental effort. You're thinking reflectively all the time, right? Mm. About yourself and yourself in the world, right? That's a very reflective thing to do. That takes time. Most people, can't, they can't be bothered. To the Why would you do it? And, but this is the thing, right? Like, we talk about these neoliberal problems and, and whatever. Else. And I, I get it. Like, I've, I've spoken to staff who have wrote around these topics mm. and then do, you know, they slate neoliberalism in an article, but they get an article out of it which goes into their ref, which looks really good. You can, like, my gut feeling is you, you, you can do it. Like, if we're saying that being nice and talking to people like a person is that monumental thing... Mm then maybe there's a paper in that. And maybe that's... I mean, maybe yeah. that might not go to ref. I don't know. But, you, you know, like, one thing that I've kind of... One of like, our head of faculty sort of put into me over this year is, that, do you know what? Like, you can be strategic about these things. So... And that's not to do it to be strategic. It's to do it to help more people. But do it to help people. And, yeah. you know, like, Bell... Like, there's people that I read, like... Okay, let's get a Bell Hooks quote But Bell there. Hooks, yeah, yeah, no, but I'll listen to... You know, like, Bell Hooks you can actually get on an audiobook and listen yeah. to on the car on the way in, right? Yeah. So there's certain academics you can't get in there. Yeah. But, like, Bell Hooks is one of those who's well-known enough where I was listening to it driving into work. That took no extra time for me. Like, and there's things that you can do, which we can say, in the day, doesn't work. And you know what? Like, there's a lot of capitalists who always... And I know it's bad, but they feed this rhetoric. You can do this. You can do this if you find time. There's some truth in that. I don't believe it all the way. But I, we spend a lot of time in the academy bemoaning the amount of pressure we've got. Yeah. And in my department last year, we went for a restructure. And do you know what? It was the most unproductive period in the whole time. 
because everyone spent time gossiping about the restructure mm-hmm. and was like, I'm under so much stress because of the restructure, I couldn't possibly help those students. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, if you spent that 10 minutes mm-hmm. where you were talking about the restructure, investing that in students, mm-hmm. you'd feel better in yourself because mm-hmm. do you know what? I've done something productive. You wouldn't be moaning because that student's not knocking at your door stressed or putting that work in late or, or whatever else. And like, but you see, I, I'm, some people are going to think I'm being really, really unfair and I'm no, stereotyping. No, no, but no. Like, they like, uh, I, I don't think they will at all. I think particularly lots of our listeners that are academics are on the same page as us. But if anything, it'd be good to get to academics that aren't necessarily on the same page as us. It's reminding me, Michael, when we went to Saskia's research group for Royal Holloway, the Why Is My Research Group So White um, episode, the head of the research group was an academic. We sort of did our presentations, like spoke Mm. about what it had been like for our journeys in academia. And one of them just said the what can I do thing, like as in what Mm. can I do question. And I just asked, I said, have you ever told any of your black students that they can be academics? And I said, no. Right. So it's just, you know what I mean? It's like, and that's not, that's not, mm. to, I'm not individualising that person. I'm not individualising that person at all. I think that, I think that's 90% of people. Wait. How are we, you're right. We've done this same dance. You're exactly right. Listen. How are we changing things within our everyday practices? Even if it's just saying to a working class black kids, uh, did you know, like, let me, show you you, let me show you how fucked up things are in 2019, right now, right? In London, all these buses have got clearing things on the buses, mm. right? Clearing's like, you oh, don't want to do that, right? That's the only time I see black people in universities on that bus clearing mm. and black person. Clearing, I can help you, black person. Fuck all that, man. Like, listen, no, yeah. you can, we can change all that, right? There's fucking reams of research. I'm not a fucking expert. I'm not an expert on race. None of us are. Mm. But there's fucking 100 years of research out there, and you're still doing the same thing. And also, you've got people like amazing ally and friend of ours, Dominic Jackson-Cole, who has done his PhD work on looking at, um, I think he does use the BME category, um, to look at face, basically students of colour that appear on prospectuses mm. yeah. and like it's like as if we've got all that visual representation <laughs> but then when we get into the classroom you're just failed but like. you know, and this is the thing right like I, I we had a while back we had a resit day right so students who were Aww. resitting modules all came in and they're all coming in classrooms and talking to one another and um I had a second year student who I had a second year student there who just he's messed up on a presentation but he's getting like high two ones right he's getting high two ones and this is a student from south london Ghanaian heritage parents moved to italy then he moved to south london um and he was getting 40s in his first year right and he's sitting there like on this recent day and then i've got another student come in um again a commuter student from west london so we kind of use these different categories commuter student bame polar which is used for for class um wow and and they kind of do you know what these guys probably ticked all of these three categories right what do we use for white middle class students? oh well, well they would fit in the, they would be in as polar one to five based upon how likely people from your area are to go to universities that's but even hell. that's kind of yeah messed up because we actually know like to some extent if like this is the thing when i've done the interviews regarding class right the kids from the council estates in Harlesden or Handsworth or wherever went, man, it's McDonald's or uni. Whereas the, mm. the, the kids whose parents had traditionally been like working class but had been socially mobile or new middle class, they went, well, I, I made the choice to come to uni so I could have 
been, I could have gone to be a carpenter or I could have yeah, gone on an apprenticeship, yeah, yeah. but I chose to go to uni. And so actually, because of that social capital, that's limited. So that measure's a problematic measure anyway. Yeah, but sorry, going, I interrupted. Going back to the original story, like it's sitting there and saying to those students, are you, so they were sort of there in the same room, never met each other, but straight away looked at each other, spoke the same language, right? Because one's grown up in part of West London, the other one's grown up in part of South London, which is very similar in demographic. And it was a really small thing, but going, hey, you two need to get to know each other a little bit because do you know what? He was getting 40s last year and now he's getting 65s. You need to speak to him about what he's doing because when I go back to my research on social class and I guess when I first started doing that, I was like, God, I spread myself too thin. But when I've looked at it now where I'm really positive, I guess, about this in the PhD is that I've been able to identify the structures that the new middle class students and the students on campus use to gain benefits. Networks. Networks. Yeah. And they don't, and I know it's something that you guys are big on in leading roots, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, that's something that my colleagues, I just don't think are even aware of. They go, oh, oh, these three black students always sit together and don't talk to anyone, but they're not aware of the fact, well, they're traveling in for an hour and a bit and mm. traveling out for an hour and a bit and they're in for three hours of lectures and going, oh, fucking hell, three hours of lectures. This is a bit shit. I've, I've spent as much time commuting as I have in lectures. But it's about flipping those networks around, right? So when I go back to the bits, boom, I know those networks, right? If someone said to me, get these trains or speak to this person, boom, I'll show you because mm. I know those networks. I don't have to know those people. I know someone who knows someone who knows yeah. someone. So they know about networks. It's about understanding those networks. So In the academic. In a different yeah. context, right? Mm. So about so how do these people leverage these networks? So I'm trying to tell the kids, like, listen, you speak to your power net. Speak to your pal because he knows how what he's doing. I can safely say, and many of the people that have contributed to this podcast, there is no way that I would be sat here without networks. There would be no way that I'd be sat here without the opportunities that I've had. I am a privileged, even though I'm self-funded, that's not a privilege, but I'm a privileged PhD student. I have met and have done some really exciting work, and that is because someone taught me quite early on about networks but so this is the two things right it's the first thing is like we're going back to this idea of networks making my colleagues if we're talking about making white people aware and i'm saying that as a white person yeah but making my colleagues aware making them aware of how that student's got 67 or 68 mm. that you just think they just get 68 because they're that good yeah you do you do or or you think that that's their natural ability or you think yeah, they're on a pgc yeah, yeah. because of this that or the other like it's actually making them aware that, no, they've gone through a process mm. and used a network to get there. The second thing for me is telling that student who's resitting, he's going, oh, I just got 40s or 50s this year. I don't really care. To be honest, I'd rather play FIFA, mm. which is quite a lot of my, like, mm. quite a lot of my students who go, this is crap. I'm, I've, I've kind of tried, but I don't really know how the game works. Mm. I've got, I don't really know the networks of how it works. I'd rather play FIFA, to be honest. Mm. Like, it's going to them. Do you know what? Look, he's done it. You can do it. Mm. And it's just that little conversation to them. They go, look, he's done it, you can do it. And my, and my colleague Perry says this quite a lot. He says, and I know it's there in research as well, but he says, you know, how often do staff go, you can get that next grade boundary? How often do they... Yeah. Just the way that they frame it and tell yeah. them... See, so if you talk that on a kind of wider basis, right, that's seeing someone as a human being, right? Having a conversation with someone. But we know the intersection of race, class, gender, mm. these things stop people having conversations on the real level because it in involves you being reflective on some kind of level, right? Mm. Understanding your own positionality in this and being reflexive. 
And that's a hard thing to do for people because I, it involves yeah, work, man. Definitely. And I think the other thing that sort of contrib- contributes to what we're talking about here is time as well. So often those that have got more privilege than us are ahead of the game. So people not have found out about networks because they've grown up in a family or in an area mm. where networks are integral to their family life, to their parents' life. And it's like, we're sort of always learning these networks just later. And that sort, listen, of, sort of... Right, dip, boom. The standard thing is, right, if I've got privilege, if I bring you in, I might lose my privilege. So it's a gang, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm not bringing people in. When I started working at sea, they know it's a gang. Yeah. So I'm bringing my people in, and I don't want to bring your because then, it might mean it might mean losing something, and that's how people. I'm suit starting up. to think. I'm starting to think on that stuff, right? We're, I know we spoke a lot. We've spoken a lot about how people that have got privilege in the academic sense or in the academy don't want to maybe don't want to give up their privilege, and that's what's at the bottom of it. I don't. I'm starting to think actually, like talking about your privilege. What does that do? Like I don't, I don't think it hurts people. Hundred percent, right? So is it a perceived threat, a, or, a, they, or they right, think Right. So it's let, let me take about the extremists, right? Yeah. So they know they've got privilege, and they're all willing to die for it. Most white people don't understand they have privilege, but these people know they've got a privilege, and they're willing mm. to die for it, right? But and they're, they're thinking, well, if I bring you in, maybe I might lose some of the thing that I have. They're not mm. too sure what that thing is, but it's a perception that they might do. It's just fascinating to me, like people that we're even like close to or that are just like in your general like peer group and whatever, that have had privilege most of their life and they just don't want to talk about it. And I just find that just fascinating. I find it fascinating. And I think that's it, isn't it? Like one of the things is you always get a response. If someone's privileged, they go, yeah, but I've worked hard, right? And I will say... It's a meritocracy. It's not a... Sorry. It's a myth of meritocracy, guys. But it's it's that opportunity, isn't it? Yeah. Look, we all work hard, right? The cleaner who is... In, in the office in the morning, she's working hard. The head of faculty, he's working hard, right? Yeah. They're all working hard. The fact is, it's the opportunities that are built up over time. And that's the thing that I think sometimes why people get defensive. They go, no, but I've worked hard for it. And I'm like, well, yeah, of course you worked hard for it. But that's just, like one of the things that really changed my thinking. And it kind of got me starting with my PhD and took me along that journey. I had a student who failed his dissertation way, way back. And he turned around to me and he went, Everyone thinks I just try to get 40s. I don't try to get 40s. And I went, and it was that experience where you go, oh, yeah, but... When he said that, what did it make you feel like? Well, it, it just made me go, yeah, like he didn't try to get 40s. But the fact is, he hadn't been, he didn't know what to do to get 60s. Yeah. Right? This, you, you know, and the day that he came in, I always remember this, he'd been working on a building site. He had his boots on, he had like his high vis on, he had the lot on. And I went, yeah. And the thing is, is the thing that I found is students start, again, coming back to the research that I've done, students start the first few weeks of uni and they're like, I'm just going to transition to this. It's going to be the same because I've gone to college and I transitioned and it was all good. It was all sweet. Like no one said to me, you know, and then they get there and go, oh, it's not. And then at that point, you get this switch off. But actually, I think I, I said this to you before, T, so I think there's really minimal things that people can start to do mm. when they're addressing the room. Like, freshers week, I've sat there and so many freshers weeks, I've heard like a head of department go, oh, I'm sure you, they either ignore the fact there's a social element of uni going on, mm. or they go, or they try and be a bit cool and down with, down with them and go, oh, I'm sure you're all hanging from the freshers week's activities. And I'm going, you know, half the room, half the room, is not involved yeah, in that they're the commuting yeah. um 
And you can just simply flip that and go, I'm sure some of you are feeling tired from your commute mm. or some of the uni social activities. And yeah, straight away, yeah. you've not said to those commute students, you're you not, don't fit in, you don't belong. Oh, yeah, and it's, you're right. it's, language, language. It's some of those little things that because these members of staff aren't aware, because they've gone through that, a lot of our colleagues have gone through that journey themselves. Mm. You just say, do you know what? You can just frame these things. And again, like you can easily say to like a group of students, like, okay, I'm sure some of you are feeling uncomfortable right now. For some of you, this might be the the most ethnically diverse room you've been in. For a few of you, this might be the least ethnically diverse. And just recognising it for them just goes, oh shit, you've, you've thought about my experience a little bit. And I'm not saying that that's going to make the change to the institutions because mm -hmm. it needs a lot more. But there's a little bit of consciousness there but actually this is stuff that i would say a lot of my colleagues probably have never thought about or never had the time to think about and that's where my over the next year i'm going right how can i work with them to be more aware what i think that's interesting is that it's the idea of being critical right the idea mm. of critical makes you feel vulnerable it makes you feel a bit uncomfortable mm. maybe i'm contributing to this thing we call racism this thing called sexism maybe i'm contributing to it and how does that make people feel maybe you are that's uh, exactly. like, that's what I mean. maybe, so like, maybe you are like i did like I, there's things that but, i contribute inequalities that i contribute exactly, to exactly but, but some people are not willing to have that conversation yeah. and you can see that when you talk to them mm. if i say to them i'm studying whiteness you know how people react to me yes. they're like everyone yeah. black people are like oh t what does that even what had what do they say to you I'm like, not much really, but... Can you imagine if you were like, yeah, I'm but, studying black people, and yeah. they'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is the thing, it makes people feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And are, are, we uncom are we happy of being uncomfortable? And this is one of the things, like, this is something that I think about a lot when I listen to your podcast, yeah. right? Where I, this is a, going back to where I grew up, whiteness was in some ways kind of drilled into us. And Where did you grow up again? So I grew up um, Sidcup, or, well, grew up Sidcup, went to school in Elton. So Elton is like one of the last bastions of the EDL. Like yeah. when there was the riots in Tottenham, my brother thought it was hilarious that the EDL went down to defend McDonald's. Mm. Like, right. I don't know why they were defending, like, like they were defending Elton High Street, right? Mm. I now, saw Stephen Lawrence as well. Yeah, Stephen Lawrence. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's all heavily associated. Yeah. Um, and, but like we would, people would say things that you didn't think of being big at the time, but like, I think in your, leading roots video you talk about trainers right mm -hmm. and like i remember growing up at school and be going people go air max ones mate why are you not wearing reebok classics yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was those little or wearing a oh. pair of gloves and going oh mate they're a bit black aren't they mm -hmm. really and yeah. like what i would say is a lot of the a lot of the kids that i grew up around you've got the kids whose families have always come from that area and then you've got the kids whose parents were probably i think this is you know when they talk about like the white working class i think this is who they actually mean but they're no longer working class they've moved to become middle class and their parents had grown up in new cross deptford mm. yeah. lewisham but had i think you know had had experienced and moved out to the suburbs I had to flee white flight man and yeah. then they would say to you and you know they say oh, like i remember people going call michael why are you saying that word it sounds a bit black and, and you do it to each other mm. and it's that reflecting and looking back and going oh shit, yeah i did do that right yeah and actually having that like you go that's not good but but then i would say to you michael like although like like my family mm. like as in my white family are from medway town and like yeah, Sheppey. Yeah. so like all of that that world is very very familiar to me mm. but i guess all we, we always try and bring it back on this podcast sort of 
diverting away from like recognizing those those mm. cultures because they're relevant to british society but sort of moving it to the suburbs and the white yeah. middle classes because these are the people that have whether it's demonized benefited structure like all these different things these are the people that are sort of the most understudied like Listen, it's all when that, it comes to higher education, it comes to life, like they're but I'm trying neglected. But I'm trying to think of themselves. So this fucking debate, like knife crime and chicken boxes and all that kind of fucking nonsense, right? But I'm trying to say to them, listen, like you think wider than that, right? Yeah. Violent knife crime is a problem, right? Yeah. But most people don't die from violence. Like the highest crime is people getting punched in the street, drunk and fighting. That's the most, the highest rate of like fighting and all that. That's yeah, the death, yeah, yeah. right? But no one talks about that. Yeah. Because it's, it's normally associated with white people being yeah. drunk on a Friday mm, night, yeah. but that's not racialized and spoken about in the same way. But I guess what I, but I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't know if this, I don't know if this, um, I think you'll know what I mean. Like Michael describing his area, like growing up and the sort of like the the casual racism that you'll witness or participate in. But I sort of want to make that connection to how that's sort of facilitated and embedded by people with more power. So my take do, on this Do you know is, what I mean? Yeah. Like, because it's so easy to pathologise so, that stuff. And, and you're right. And yeah. I, I haven't really done the work on this. So no, 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 no. And I'm, also, I'm not critiquing and, what you're and, saying and at and all. I think my take on this is actually, like when I look at those people, it comes back to this area of, you can almost typecast that group of being racist because they talk with a bit of a Cockney accent or, like, look, Bexley is one of the only areas, I think it was, like, Bexley, Sutton. That voted Lee. That voted Lee, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Dagenham, I think, or something yeah. like that. So, again, it's easy to pathologise, and that's I guess that's how it's deflected. Now, for me, when I look at talking about higher education, it's funny because I don't necessarily really relate to the circles that you, you guys are talking about as circles of power because... I mean, I'm doing my PhD at Loughborough, which is a Russell group, but mm. I'm there like three times a year. Mm, mm. I, I'm doing my PhD via Skype. Mm. The first time I walked in there, I was like, what is this place? That's what I did my undergrads. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. It's mental. It's like, a, but those people, so the people that are, are taking up space in that environment, work in that environment, yeah. even though I, I met some amazing people there as well, yeah. but those people are sort of understudied in all parts of society. They're understudied in higher education. Mm. They're understudied but, but within... Of course they are, though. But this yeah, no, but we've got, we've but, got to study them. But, but, um, my next ethnography is going to be in Cornwall, I'm see, telling you. <laughs> challenge those people. It's like, like I said to you, on the most superficial level, right? Yeah. I walk into the shop and I can find books about white working class people, yeah. black people. But I don't find books about white middle class people. Yeah. On the most superficial level. Go to that, yeah. that Quaker cafe, right? There's fucking books on everyone. Apart from the people that are sat in there, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you understand? So they're not going to read about themselves. Why? Because I'm the proximity centre. I am the centre. It's sort of that the silent majority. Is it the silent majority? Yeah, but I don't know. Oh, I, I, don't I know. kind of feel yeah. like when you start doing some some of the class research, I do think it's there a bit. Like, and actually, yeah. when sort of the savage stuff came out, what's really interesting to look at is, is that the, like that AB ones. So when Mike or... Savage done the, um, they did the work on the. Uh, BBC class calculator oh, yeah, yeah. and they brought out the you, seven categories the new categories right the categories I think in some senses are problematic but what's really interesting to read is the responses to the categories so people like Nicola Rollock Imogen Tyler Bev Skeggs uh, as well yeah Bev yeah. Skeggs Danny Dorlin all wrote responses and in themselves 
they were really interesting. And one of the critiques I remember is actually within, within higher education, we're often interested in elites mm. and we're interested in those who are disadvantaged. And we forget yeah. the middle. And actually, when I look at the university I teach at, out of my participants, I interviewed like 18 participants. It was, well, I interviewed more, but had to exclude some for various reasons. Mm. Out of those 18, only like 13 of them had parents that had gone to uni. So on paper, they were what you would call like first generation students. And so there are these institutions that exist. And actually in that institution where I'm in, they're the group who almost have a bit more power, mm. if you like, compared to, say, a Russell, Russell group, mm. where they would be there going, they would be the new students, they would probably be slightly in, in a less powerful So can you, can you just break that down a bit further? These 13 students, they've got parents that have gone to university, but they haven't necessarily have got the grades to go to a Russell group. Is that what you mean? So I had, so I had 18 students I interviewed. Yeah. Five of them had parents that had gone to university. So that's what yeah. in my PhD I, I referred to as the established middle class um, with higher educational capital. Because um, there were students who were established middle class, but parents had never gone to uni, but their parents were like civil servants. They'd done right. very well. Um, but on paper... Everyone apart from those five at the institution that I'm teaching at would be classed as first generation students. And so we see a lot of rhetoric around first generation students. So actually, when I looked at it, there's a group of students that I would call like the new middle class, which are almost people whose parents have been socially mobile mm. at the institute where I am, who actually in that institution, they are probably the majority. Right. And to some extent, they don't quite have the same social networks as those students whose parents have gone to university, they don't quite have the same advantage, but they kind of made up the majority. And to some extent, in terms of the culture of the university, in terms of like the social side of the university, in terms of actually where staff would look and go, oh, that's a, you know, they're kind of working class or kind of think they were, they go, oh yeah, but so-and-so got on a PGC or so-and-so's gone mm. to do a master's. And they actually had quite a lot of influence and power. So I think when you're right, when we look at the real elite universities, mm. those old established um, elites, like they're mm. elites, aren't they? If we're going to go with Savage's terminologies mm. or anyone else's terminologies, do seem to have influence and power and they are less studied. But at the same extent, I think you do sometimes get some studies of elites, and this is what the British class survey stuff kind of highlighted in some of the critiques here. There's lots of stuff interesting in how the elite maintain the elite. And there's lots of interest in how those who are from the lower categories, and mm. as a kid, there were problems with Savage's categories mm. f for a number of reasons, um, are less advantaged. But actually, I think the conversation we were having earlier about that kind of critical mass in mm. the middle, and we call, like, I, I do this, right? I call everyone middle class mm. who's sort of in those middle categories. And one of the good things that Savage did do and the team did do, and I keep attributing to him, where actually there was a lot of people mm. who worked on it. Um, they really highlighted differences in those middle mm. categories, because that, that was kind of the majority. And in themselves, I sometimes think they almost use the category down to almost, I don't know, batter, but like to almost justify, well, they've, they've been socially mobile, so you these guys down here, in the lowest categories, you've not got a problem with being disadvantaged because this group have been socially mobile, they've done it. Yeah, it kind of gives a... Yeah. Does it, it gives an excuse or do you think it gives a... 
I don't know. Sorry, I know. Sorry, no, so we're, we're talking very like existentially, yeah, but yeah, I'm, it's I'm like, a rambler. No, no, no. Man. We're ramblers. Like, it's good. It's but good. I think it's, and this is why like Americans, and I met some Americans go, why are you so obsessed with class? Because they're like, we don't care about class. And like, I've met a couple of Americans and Canadians go, why are Brits so obsessed with class, right? And I know we start talking off about race. And yeah. We moved into. I have been reading about class the last few days. I've been reading the Great Reform Bill, the first mm. one, the second one, mm. and it's it isn't it is a, a almost English obsession really. Yeah. And it, it's important to try and understand that it's historically baked in because people had to fight for their rights to vote. Mm. I think by the first reform bill i think only a hundred thousand can't remember the stats but it's a very small amount of mm. population were allowed to vote and it's based on like the rotten bar is getting removed so this is part of the, our transition moving from a kind of an elitist country to a kind of more democratic democratic form of a country so it's important to the, how we perceive ourselves and i think this is this is the thing right and i you know margaret thatcher she famously said like there's no thing there's no such thing as society right mm. she was selling off all the council houses mm. Um, which were markers, I guess they were symbolic markers, weren't they, mm. of being working class. And, like, you look at how timelines marry up. Mm. So when you look when Education for All was brought in, yeah. 1944 is the point where everyone has to stay in education until, I think it was 15, 16 mm. at the time, historically. Um, and then you look at, well, how old would those individuals have been in the 80s, right? So when this idea about, and I've not done this big, deep work, but when I've been looking at it sometimes and thinking about it, well, of course, by the 1980s, we've started to see some, on a level, on a surface level, we're seeing people appear as being more equal. Mm -hmm. Because there is a generation of adults who at that time might start school in 1944. So if they start school in 1944, they're five, right? Mm -hmm. So come the 1980s, they're in their 40s. So all of a sudden, those are homeowners who at the same time were buying mm -hmm. council houses, right? And all of a sudden, neoliberalism comes in and you start getting factories that are, you know, that, that labour which existed in the 1980s changes dramatically in the 1990s. So all of a sudden, I see why Savage and that group did that work a few years back, because you had on the one hand this attempt at egalitarian work from the 1940s pushing onwards mm -hmm. and come like the 80s and 90s we're then starting to see and i haven't really formulated this or understood this so well yeah some of the apparent payoffs or some people who are maybe not perceiving class to be an issue because man like, i got a job in the city mm -hmm. they benefit yeah and, and time is from, yeah time yeah. is integral to yeah understanding yeah how class manifests but also how people move beyond their class like i think yeah. what you're saying is you really can, important you can see the work and you can see the benefit of it like like i said when you when you, when you start seeing like you have to understand like this is part of the british culture english culture the chartist movement the peter mm. lumas all this stuff is about working class people trying to better their lives and mm. obviously the initial payoff the people starting you won't see the benefit of that until later on right mm. it's how once you get to this point now where class and race intersect and especially in this current moment where people are fetishizing the white working classes and well, not, yeah they're doing but and they're doing but not it really, for a reason but not seeing they? me as working class right yeah not seeing my struggle and this is the most fucked up thing at the moment this right is, this is problematic i had this conversation with a colleague the other day where sometimes i know because i've done my phd on class and then the students that i'm working with like a lot of my working class students tend to be BAME, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes I conflate the two. And actually, 
what I do know from the recent, from the interviews and stuff that I did on the PhD was that the white working class students or the BAME students who were working class but had been in predominantly white environments before coming to university. That's me. They, they, <laughs> they seem to settle in university easier than those BAME working class students who lived off of university. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, me. I can see. <laughs> yeah, and, and I can so see. I can see what you mean. And yeah. so there's that narrative yeah. there. But this, this this interesting term that came up when I was doing the research was they spoke about having to adapt, right? So I'm going to uni and going back to our initial discussion. I'm going to uni, and the guys who'd never been in a white environment before, in a white middle class environment before, and it's a as I said, the university I work at is a middle class environment that almost masks itself as a working class environment. Yeah. So in terms of sport is like sport is at the centre of it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So some of my middle class students said, Oh my god, if I have an opinion on politics, everyone's like, Why are you talking about politics? Mm. Or like I had some of those students who's like I think their mum and dad were Guardian readers, mm. right? And they would say things like, Oh yeah, well I'm into feminism and all the other students would just look at them like, What? Yeah. But, but the, going back to what I was saying, those sort of BAME working class students who've been in those environments before would say, I'd, I'd adapted, I had to adapt. And when I'd ask them, I'd say, so if you like, if you spoke how you spoke back home, if you dressed how you dressed back home, how do you think like your your the mates in your mates in halls would would look at you? And they went, oh, they'd be scared. Mm. Like they literally went. They'd be scared or they'd be like, yeah. what is this guy on? But what I would say, Michael, not to interrupt you, but just yeah. sort of locating my own. So, yeah, I was a bl- I'm, I was a black student in a predominantly white town and then went to Loughborough, a predominantly white university. And what I would say to you in terms of how you've sort of been classifying a lot of the students at your mm. institution in terms of class, it was very, very different at Loughborough. Mm. So, like, I had to understand what elitism was very quickly. Mm. So even though I'd adapt, I've adapted to whiteness my whole life, like my whole life is about adapting to how white people are and live. And it is a, it is a, it is a cultural thing, I believe. Yeah. However, it's a varied culture. So when you got, so even though your students, your students of color that you're talking about mm. were able to adapt, I feel like I, it, even though I am where I am now, but if I'd known what I know now, I would have gone to a uni like Michael's uni because I think I would have found it a lot less but I think I think you're right. Yeah. And I would say that the first time I went up to Loughborough, like, because I didn't really get these differences in unis. I kind of been sheltered. I'd done my undergrad and masters at the same yeah, uni. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then I rock I rocked up at Loughborough, and the first thing the cab driver said to me is, "It's a really green university." And you've seen my uni campus. Yeah, yeah, it's so powerful, like, it's, powerful. It's, it's nice. Like, it's nice. beautiful. Like it's beautiful. But I mean that in itself has symbolic issues. Yeah. But. Um, Oh well, she drove on there and I went, "What? You mean the astroturfs? Because it's it's not." And I remember sort of sitting there and just. There's one day I went. I had a meeting with my supervisor and I went and sat in the SU and there was like a conga line that came out of like at three o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon out of the club, in the, and but I remember just seeing the Jack Wills collars popped. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Hockey bags everywhere, like stuff that, symbolically, I was just like, yes, there's a there's, there is a massive difference. Yeah. And. And going back to where I was talking about students, like mm. our students, I think are kind of aware of that too when they play those unis like Loughborough and that. Yeah, they go, like, they go, uh, oh, they're the posh unis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even though they themselves are 
actually they they are kind of middle class. But yeah, got, yeah, it's not the same level. It's like working class habitus. Yeah. To some yeah, yeah. extent, or old school working class habitus. Yeah, yeah. Which is what, like, again, like I met some amazing academics, some of my best mates there, but I needed that habitus. Like, I needed that mm. habitus so much, so much so that I just got so, just like depressed because mm. I just didn't have anyone that had shared like similar experiences to me that cro- cut across race and class. Well, no, I was going to ask you well, one quick question. So, how does that map in? So, you see, when I went to your universities, right? So, so your university. Yeah. How does that map into like things like the the the, the sports that students choose to play? So like we have a big there's a big rivalry between football and rugby. But mm. even in the football, there's this there's this kind of insane scenario that goes on, right? And I don't think the university will be too happy that I'm saying this on camera. But I don't even know if they know to be honest. Where we have a number of football teams, and I remember we were talking about this. Yeah. But one of my students wants to do his dissertation on the second team on the men's second team because that's the black football team right Right. so there's four predominantly white football teams and then there's one football team which identifies as predominantly black or white working class from urban backgrounds Mm. um and he wants to look at how does that create a sense of solidarity for the participants who play on that team sick but also how it definitely does how does that also create this sense of otherness from the university culture yeah but, and, it, and it forms exclusion as well and we or... are, and i think are probably our most ethnically diverse sports team sports culture we've got an in, endurance like an elite endurance athletic center which actually when i was a student is what i was part of and um yeah that that's pretty diverse these days didn't used to be but there's there's been a mo farrow effect where we've got a lot of City kids that, yeah. Lots of city kids that all of a sudden doing distance running, right? Um, So that's kind of changed. And then we've got that rugby. and But it's funny because I would say there's a gender issue as well, right? Because I would say the boys' sport is probably slightly more ethnically diverse. I would say if you look at the girls' sports teams... Really? Oh they're my god! Probably, they're, they're yeah. so I think I think that's so. university wide though. I think that's, that's university wide. I, think that's interesting. I do, yeah. Yeah. But... Oh, we're gonna have to end there. There's so much. We haven't covered, like, it was so yeah. interesting. We forgot, we forgot the book. <laughs> Do you know what? We should, we should start like, recording earlier. We should yeah, start recording earlier. We should start recording earlier. guys, we hope you enjoyed this, though. It's sick, I get Michael, Michael, get you to come on when you finish your PhD. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you might be waiting a while, but <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's been such a great season so far. Just going to say, for all of you guys as well, can you make sure that you rate and subscribe to us on iTunes? But we need you to do this on Spotify and iTunes as well to help increase our visibility. Do it. Patreon supporters, you've got another episode coming. Thank you so much to those people. We'll see you next week. See you next week.